Hi, this is On Mike with Jordan Rich. Very happy to welcome you and to actually admit something to you, that I am an avowed Marxist, as is my special guest today. No, 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 not that kind of Marxist. The only kind that really matters, that of Groucho, Chico, Harpo, Zeppo, and yes, we'll even include Gummo. Get set for a deep dive into the legendary brothers who continue to make us laugh today. My guest is Robert Bader, author of an incredible book, Four of the Three Musketeers, The Marx Brothers on Stage, chronicling their rise to stardom in vaudeville and their eventual conquest of the silver screen. Robert's the editor of Groucho Marx and other short stories and tall tales. He's also a writer and producer of documentaries, including The Dawn of Sound, How Movies Learn to Talk. Other projects involve Danny Kaye, The Honeymooners, Bing Crosby. Robert is one of those entertainment mavens. He also teams up with Dick Cavett, releasing classic Cavett episodes, and word is that the Groucho shows are coming soon. So before I say goodbye, I must be going, let's go on mic and welcome the great Robert Bader. I love your work. It's amazing. This book is a mile long and 50 pounds, and it's called (laughs) Four of the Three Musketeers. The research, especially when you're dealing with guys who made a lot of stuff up, it seems, as they went along. Tell me about how you researched it. Well, what you just said is one of the biggest problems in dealing with the Marx Brothers story. These guys never let the truth get in the way of a good story or a joke. So half of it was dismantling the myths that fans have come to love. Because people love to tell the stories they read in Harpo Speaks or in Groucho and Me. And there's always a grain of truth. There's always something to the story. But then you break it down and you find what really happened. And, you know, I love the idea of actually trying to document where and when these stories would really have taken place. And it took years to do it. And anybody who had a deadline for a book or had, you know, other things to do in their life probably wouldn't have been able to spend the time on it that I spent on it. (laughs) Well, Uh, it's a project that uh, is well worth waiting for. Jerry Seinfeld is a big endorser. Uh, You can't get a better endorsement than that. Yeah, people, since since he did that interview in the New York Times, people have been calling and asking me what his rate is as a publicist because he just did such (laughs) an amazing thing for me there. Uh, He is sort of a friend to the book from the beginning because he – generously loaned me a photo album in his personal collection that had belonged to Groucho. And I used a lot of rare photos from it. And he gave me a blurb for the book. He just was a real good friend to the project. And that was pretty much all I thought I'd see that. And then four and a half years after the book came out, a little over four years after the book came out, he does this interview promoting his own book and he's starting to do things for his own book. And he keeps mentioning this book. He's reading about the Marx Brothers. And he was on the Colbert show, and he was about to say the name of the book, and Colbert cut him off. Ah. And then he was doing an—he's doing an interview in Parade magazine, and he's about to say the book, and they changed to something else. So I figured, okay, well, it's close enough. I got some, you know, publicity out of it. People could figure out what book he's talking about. Then this New York Times thing—he just mentions the book about seven or eight times, oh, and man. he's raving about it. And the publisher was sort of caught off guard. The book sold out very quickly. They had to rush another printing out which, you know, not a terrible problem to have. Exactly. But it was uh, it was weird. For a couple of weeks, it was hard to get the book. And, you know, my wife put some copies on eBay just so people wouldn't sell for 100 bucks because we had a few laying around and we sold out of those. And fortunately, they got a new printing out uh, quickly. And uh, well, I'm just overwhelmed It by feels it. like, for me, it's like a graduate degree because, I mean, I'm, I'm just a very avid but not crazy fan 
in terms of the minutiae, but I, I did the scrapbook when I was young. I saw all the films. And I started out seeing, and these are the first two films when I was nine years old at a, a theater called the Exeter Street Theater, an old, old building. My dad took me. I saw A Night at the Opera and Day at the Races, and that was not so good because I didn't see the best, in my opinion. I didn't see the the Paramount years. Ever since then, I've been a fan. I mean, I can't help myself. Yeah, I was very fortunate. I grew up in New York City, and there was nothing but revival houses and places to see not just March Brothers, but old movies. I was exposed to things like W.C. Fields and Humphrey Bogart, you know, any kind of great classic film. I would look in the newspaper and say, oh, they're playing this one over here. Yeah. So I had lots of choices. And I had seen several March Brothers movies on the big screen before I saw them on television. Mm. And they were they were pretty ubiquitous on television in the late 60s and early 70s. So I just had them all out in front of me. And uh, there was that nice big 70s revival of interest in the March Brothers where a whole bunch of books came out. And Groucho's, of course, touring. And you get the Even with Groucho album. All this wonderful stuff coming out. You know, right at the time when it meant so much to me to see even the older Groucho coming up on a talk show. You know, I remember the first time I saw him on TV as an old man wearing a beret. <laughs> and it probably wasn't the Dick Cavett show. It was probably something like um, maybe something other than that, maybe like Merv or, you know, Carson or something. Yeah. And to reconcile that with the guy dancing around in horse feathers was a bit rough at the time. Yeah. But. I got used to it. He was very funny as an old man. I really enjoyed those Cavett appearances. And I remember seeing him on this weird show called The New Bill Cosby Show. Where he's dancing around with, you know, a whole bunch of dancers and just weird. You know, <laughs> but it was, anything he was on, I would make sure I saw it. You know, I'm probably one of thousands of people who had the exact same experience as kids. We'd buy the TV guide and go look for Groucho or the March Brothers in every page. And <laughs> I remember getting the TV guide on like Tuesday and taking my red pen and circling anything to do with the Marx yeah, Brothers. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the the crux of the book, which is all about their vaudeville days and their show business career. And we got to start with mom, Minnie Marx, who is uh, a, a showbiz mom of the first order. Tell us what you found out that we didn't already know about Minnie. Well, first of all, that was the really big hole in the story for me. When I read all those books as a kid, they had these mythical tales of how amazing Minnie was, and she threw them on stage, and you know, all the things you think you know. But there were some bumps in the road that didn't get a lot of uh, retelling. For example, you know, one of the things I found in the book was she was so inexperienced as a manager that when they were doing the Three Nightingales, she would take any booking they could get, not realizing that they were so far away that they would lose money on train fare. So she made mistakes earlier, but she learned that she was pretty savvy. And yes, yeah, she was really aggressive. She was an amazing woman playing in a man's world. There weren't very many female vaudeville managers. And she ended up becoming a successful producer because at a certain point, the Marx Brothers outgrew their mother as a manager and just wanted to make their own decisions. And you know, they fought that a little bit. Um, she wanted to maintain control. She owned the act for a number of years and paid them a salary. And eventually she booked other acts. She just found other people, uh, untalented cousins and uncles, people who just didn't have any skill in show business at all. And, and she realized that you could make a living in show business with absolutely no talent. Because there were so many job opportunities. There were at one point 40,000 people in the United States making their living touring vaudeville. Mm. And you had to be reasonably talented to become one of the headliners but they had acts called chasers. And when they had eight acts of vaudeville in a continuous thing where 
the first performance would finish, the people would leave, and somebody else would come in. You could come and go at any point in the show. So the seventh and eighth act would usually be pretty crappy. They called them chasers. They were bad by design to get people to leave so somebody else would come and take their seat for a nickel. <laughs> so there were a lot of opportunities in vaudeville for people who didn't know how to do anything. And, of course, the Marx Brothers used to like to tell the story that we were no good. We didn't have any talent. We just went out there and took our shot. But the truth is that Groucho was a very, very talented singer as a boy. Yeah. And she used his skill to attach other Marx Brothers to almost like barnacles on a ship because they didn't know what they were doing. And they just rode his coattails. He was on his way to a successful career on his own. And she attached a couple of brothers to him and dragged them back down to the bottom, and he had to start all over again. But those brothers also had raw musical talent. I mean, Chico at the piano and, and Harpo at the piano and Harpo well, on the harp and all that. Even before that, I mean, we're talking about attaching Gummo, mm-hmm. you know, Three Nightingales, which is Groucho Gummo and a girl singer named Mabel O'Donnell, uh, which I will tell you a wonderful story about in a moment that's uh, not even in the book because I learned Ooh. about it after the fact. It's okay. going to be in the next edition of the book. Um, but this is a point where Gummo was a sickly kid. He didn't really have any interest in show business. He allegedly was in a fake ventriloquist act with their uncle Harry, who was a ventriloquist who was also allegedly deaf. So (laughs) (laughs) your chance for success with a deaf ventriloquist who can't perform the art of ventriloquism. So you get a kid in the dummy and you pretend he's a ventriloquist dummy. It's insane. But Gummo comes into this act doesn't know how to do anything. She puts him in the Ned Wayburn vaudeville school and makes a deal with Ned Wayburn to create an act with another talented kid, her already working performer of a son, Julius, and Gummo, who he's going to train. Harpo is just a near-do-well kid without a future, bouncing around Manhattan, doing odd jobs and getting fired from them. And she goes, you know, I better put this kid in the act. Mm. It goes from there. And then you eventually Chico's out on his own playing the piano and he's pretty good and he joins the act. But in the beginning, I mean, she saw people making a living in vaudeville who were just as untalented as her sons. Why not jump in? So tell me the Mabel story. So the Marx Brothers always told horrible stories about Mabel O'Donnell. She sang off key. She was ugly. She had a glass eye. (laughs) All sorts of things. She chased after Groucho. Harpo speaks, he calls her a nymphomaniac, and Harpo was never even in the act with Mabel O'Donnell. He may never have even met her. It's entirely possible he never laid eyes on this woman. But they had these stories that were their stock and trade, and they told them over and over again. There's a a thing that happens when the Marx Brothers scrapbook is published in 1973. Groucho says some really horribly nasty things about her. Now, in the book by Kyle Crichton, which the Marx Brothers commissioned to be their life story, they made up a fake name. They called her Janie O'Reilly. So if any of her relatives read it, they wouldn't be mad. Well, Groucho used her real name, and a piece of that March for the Scrapbook interview was run as an excerpt in a magazine called Penthouse, which is kind of like a low-rent version of Playboy from the 70s, if people aren't familiar with it. Oh, yeah. And it was uh, pretty bad when Mabel O'Donnell's daughter got wind of it and wrote a nasty letter to Penthouse, which they ran, and then she also wrote a letter to Groucho, which became part of the record of his lawsuit to stop publication of the book because he didn't mean to be quoted with all these nasty things he said. Well, I tried for years to find that daughter and was unable to, mostly because the letter was handwritten and her name had an unusual spelling and I couldn't find her. After the book was published, um, 
Further research did reveal that she existed, but it was the granddaughter now. And I found the granddaughter and spoke to her. And the story is incredible, but she didn't leave the act because of all the things that the Marx Brothers said about her. She left the act because amazingly, and this is a big scoopy, the first place this has ever been discussed. She was kicked in the head by a horse. Really? <laughs> Apparently, this is what happened to her. So her inability to sing and her problem with her eye came as a result of a terrible accident oh. while she was with the Three Nightingales. And the Marx Brothers uh, you know, turned that into something other than what it was. <laughs> and uh, this will be in the next pr- next printing of the book, I'm sure, because it was supposed to be this one. We didn't quite make it. Oh. But it's an amazing story because they were pretty vicious to her. You know, it, 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 what's really interesting, and, and and you know this inside and out, and I, you're such the authority, but they're characters in films and on stage, wise guys, con men, shysters, how to, you know, con the, the, the rich guys, almost is born out of their own experiences, right? I mean, particularly Chico and Harpo. Yeah, I think there's something to be, you know, I don't want to go into analyzing it, but I will say that there's a lot there from what they experienced coming up in vaudeville. I think everything mm-hmm. that you see in the March Brothers movies is informed in some way by vaudeville, uh, to the point where there's even routines and bits from their early vaudeville acts incorporated into the films, even as late as the later MGM films. I mean, there's a piece of Mr. Green's reception from 1912 in the big store from 1941. Mm-hmm. And People that are wondering, it's the double piano solo that Harpo and Chico worked out for that act. But there's a lot of that. And their experience with authority has to go back to dealing with the monopoly of vaudeville and the Keith and Albee circuit and things like working the renegade circuits like Pantages and getting in trouble. And just flouting authority goes back for them to the earliest days in vaudeville. Right, it became right. a centerpiece. One, one of the key names um, is Al Sheen. And this is a, a relative, right? Was it was it their uncle? I guess. Yes, it's, it's Minnie's brother. Minnie's uh, brother, and and Minnie's. tell tell the story of Al Sheen because he becomes a bit of a hit in his own world at the time, right? Yeah, he's a fascinating story. I I fell in love with the Al Sheen story while working on Four of the Three Musketeers because I found wonderful things about it that are not commonly told. Like one thing that's wonderful to know is they hated each other. Gallagher and Sheen just hated each other. <laughs> they had a sort of falling out. They first worked together in 1910, broke up, didn't work together for years, were convinced by many to get back together, went into the Ziegfeld Follies and became a huge hit in the uh, early 20s, I think 21 and 22. And then they toured for a couple of years and that made a fortune. Then they had the big hit record, Gall- Mr. Gallagher, Mr. Sheen. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the movie, The Sunshine Boys. I was going to say. Based on yeah. The Gallagher and Sheen. So there's also Smith and Dale and some of the other great comedy teams like Weber and Fields. But Al Sheen on his own, when he first started out, was just a guy working in a tailor shop as a pants presser. And he wanted to sing. He sang. He organized quartets. He would get fired because he would be in the tailor shop rehearsing a quartet instead of working. And they decided to go into vaudeville with this quartet. And they were originally um, the Manhattan Comedy Four, no, the Gotham City Quartet. And then they became the Manhattan Comedy Four. Just like the March Brothers, a singing act started to incorporate comedy. And he made a little bit of success in this. And then he went out on his own. And then he worked with um, a guy named um, Warren, Sheen and Warren were a big hit. And they were very influential on the young Marx Brothers. Mm. They used to do their Sheen and Warren routines in their basement. There's the charming story in Harper Speaks about how they put on a show in their basement imitating Uncle Al's act with, uh, with Sheen and Warren. And 
he became the mentor. He was the guy that was like a big success. He was making a fortune of money. And the idea of Groucho wanting to be a doctor when he was a young boy got knocked out because Al Schumann was making more money than any doctor that ever seen. Hmm. He just saw how much success his uncle had and went for it. And, you know, he would end up writing their first big breakthrough uh, vaudeville show, Home Again. They loved him. And near the end of Al Sheen's life, he became a character actor at MGM. He had a success on Broadway in a play called Father Malachi's Miracle. He played a Catholic priest on Broadway, and he made a fortune doing that. But they bailed him out when he was having tough times. He didn't have money. There's a wonderful story about when they were working on monkey business. They had all these writers coming in and doing one gag, getting knocked out of there, bringing other writers. Al Sheen wrote one joke and got paid $5,000 for <laughs> monkey business. Al Sheen wrote Home Again. They were so grateful. And he was writing gags for um, monkey business. And only one joke ended up being in the film. And I'm sure you. I'm sure you can recite the joke, right? You know, I happen to have a copy of Four of the Three Musketeers wow. at my fingertips in case I need to look something up. <laughs> uh, if you remember the joke at some point, or you want to look it up, I'd love to. I just watched uh, Monkey uh, Business again recently, so I, I'm very familiar with it. We'll get to the movies and the the transition, which is fascinating, from the stage to the films. Two things I wanted to mention. One is you describe what it was like during the influenza pandemic of 1918, 1919. In the middle of the pandemic now, everybody knows that, but so many people in show business uh, were right, I hope it's not the middle. Well, <laughs> all right, the, the, the tail end. I got my shots. It's the but tail so, end. Uh, no, but seriously, it was yeah, uh, it was crazy, crazy time. 1918 was a really interesting transitional year for the Marx Brothers, apart from the flu epidemic. Gummo had left to join the army, and 17-year-old Zeppo takes his place, and they have a new show. Zeppo came in toward the tail end of their seventh season of Home Again, which they kept changing the name of and changing the songs, but it was still home again. They called it and everything, you know, they called it back home. They just kept changing the name. It was the same show. So they have a new show that they're going to debut in the fall of 1918. And of course the flu epidemic comes and theaters close down and they do some of the sort of things we tried now, like every other seat has to be empty and people aren't going to laugh too hard with an empty seat and a mask, you know? So it was kind of, a really tough time to do live theater. You can't imagine trying to break a new show in live theater right now as if anybody mm. would even let you. Right. But they tried and they called it a day pretty quickly. I mean, they just ran that show, uh, The Street Cinderella, also known as The Cinderella Girl. Uh, they only got through a half a performance of it before they just shelved it. It wasn't going over particularly well at its debut in uh, Michigan. And they came back to the second act and just did home again. You, you also tell the story, and this is fascinating, Groucho's character on stage uh, right around the time of World War I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, had a German accent and was more of a, shall we say, cosmopolitan European style. They changed that when uh, we were at war with the Germans, right? Now that's, that's a great story that Groucho liked to change and make something out of it that it wasn't. So he would like to say this and say, when the Lusitania was sunk, they had to change the act immediately. And he went from one, one day from being German to one day not being German. Now, that's not really what happened. Way before the United States was in World War One, Canada was. And the Marchmans had periodically crossed the border to play in various cities in Canada, particularly Toronto. They played Toronto a lot. 
And they did the West Coast. They played Vancouver. They would play Winnipeg. So the Marx Brothers were frequently in Canada, while Canada was in World War One, and the United States wasn't. So they were very accustomed to not depicting German dialect on stage in Canada. So the story about the Lusitania happens where they happen to be going to play a place called Shane's Theater in Toronto. But then they came back across the border into the United States and we went back to being German. So the complete removal of German dialect from vaudeville happened a couple of years later when the United States entered the war. And that's when they really anglicized Groucho's character. He went from being Henry Schlemmer to being Henry Green or Henry Hammer. They really just made him a non-ethnic character. Now, all ethnicity was being drained out of vaudeville at that time because people were getting a little nervous about offending anyone. But the truth is vaudeville was invented for the masses, which were mostly immigrants. And people in the early days of vaudeville wanted ethnic dialogue. They wanted to hear their accent. So the Italians would love Chico because he had an Italian accent. And the Germans would love Groucho because he had a German accent. And they had a lot of different ethnicities all across vaudeville. German accents were the first to go mm. because when the Kaiser is on the front page, nobody wants to hear a German comedian. So a whole bunch of German comics changed their act completely, including Al Sheen for a little while. He made wow. it as a German comic. So it was really more gradual than Groucho says. It wasn't, oh, they sunk the Lusitania and no more German. It had been no more German when you played Toronto for a few years. Mm. Let's talk about the names because uh, great debate for decades and decades <laughs> about the derivation of the nicknames. I read about the Grouch Bag, and I wonder if you're thinking that that's it, or uh, certainly Chico chasing chickens, as Groucho would say. But is there any definitive, Harpo seems obvious, but is there any definitive basis of fact on terms of the names? I think you can use definitive in the case of four of the five Marx Brothers, and we know how they got their nicknames. There are people who will fight you about how Zeppo got his nickname. And they will like make it into a blood sport saying, you're wrong, I'm right, I heard this, I know that. But the simple one is yeah. Groucho did use a grouch bag early in vaudeville. Lots of performers did. The real derivation of why they used the grouch bag is because it was very common to have your things stolen from your dressing room while you were on stage. Describe a grouch so bag. A grouch it, what the is grouch it? bag is a shabby bag with a string that you wear around your neck and hide it under your costume. So while you're on stage, you could have your money with you. So in case they rob your dressing room or your hotel, you don't lose your money. So that was a lot of performers used. And Groucho was probably one of thousands of people wearing a Grouch bag. I think the nickname is partially from that and partially from his demeanor. So that's easy. Harpo, well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that one out. Chico, there was a practice in vaudeville known as chicken chasing, which there are articles about it. If you look at old issues of Variety and Billboard and the trade magazines, there were managers who were being, you know, getting into a lot of trouble for, for chicken chasing. And it was known as a, a bad thing to do. It was sexually harassing women on the bill or, for, you know, promising them a job and a show in exchange for, shall we say, companionship. So that was called chicken chasing. And Chico was very devoted to that as a hobby. <laughs> so when they called him Chico for chicken chasing, it was a joke about him being a really nasty guy with women. It wasn't meant to be funny when they hit him with the nickname. Mm. And, you know, you can find these things. There's a little bit of that in the book describing articles where the problem had come up in vaudeville quite a bit. Yeah. So, yeah. The fact of know. the matter is uh, anybody who says Chico Marx is, is obviously uninformed. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is, 
people would call him Chico on television, he wouldn't correct them. Mm. I mean, it, just, it wasn't worth correcting a live TV show host. But yeah, the Marksmans all called him Chico. And he referred to himself as Chico. Unless he was on some show and the guy called him Chico and he didn't correct him. Yeah. Now, so, Zepp, Zeppo is a problem. I mean, not the Zeppo, well, but yeah, the well, name. Well, the, I'll just say that <laughs> Gummo is pretty easy. Gummo allegedly wore um, rubbers over his shoes, even when it wasn't raining, mostly because um, his shoes were so worn out they were full of holes and he didn't rain that much, so he wore the rubbers. That's the. And he was also good at sneaking up on you because of that. So that's how he became Gummo or Gumshoe or however they want to start it. The Zeppo story is crazy because there's like six different versions of it. But I think my research on this is pretty good and people like to, you know, dispute it and debate it. I have gotten emails from people because I put an email address in the book in case people should find some dates I'm missing. I'd like to hear from them. And I've had some really nice correspondence from people. I've also found many ways to buy solar panels and get an auto warranty. So, you know, having my email address <laughs> out there is it's good and it's bad. But... The Zeppo thing has generated more controversy and correspondence. And the people who write me could never have known this or had any firsthand knowledge. But the best firsthand knowledge I've got comes from the children of the Marx Brothers, who have pretty much settled on one story that makes sense. And the thing about it is the original derivation of the nickname would be very insulting to Zeppo, who was the youngest brother being picked on by the four older guys. If you look around, you'll find pictures of a guy named Zip the Pinhead. And a profile picture of Zip the Pinhead next to a profile picture of Zeppo is stunning. Mm. It's like twins. And they called him first Zip, then Zep, then Zeb. Now, the idea what Groucho says on, and even with Groucho comes from God knows what, he said he was named after the Zeppelins when they arrived at Lakehurst, New Jersey. Zeppo was already named Zeppo before a Zeppelin arrived at Lake yeah. New Jersey. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think anybody buys that one, right. but it was a good story. And Zeppo didn't want to be having people told that he looked like Zip the Pinhead. So <clears throat> you will probably hear from people telling you that I am wrong about this. But Harpo in Harpo Speaks talks about a chimp act, which I think he's softening it a little bit. Saying it looks like a chimp rather than the guy with microcephaly and a slightly smaller head. Mm. You know, that's, microcephaly is a medical condition where, well, you could look it up. I don't want to. No, I, I, I reminded of the movie Freaks in 32 with uh, with those yeah. characters, that the real circus performers. Yeah. No, that's that's a fascinating story that you tell. Yeah, so they, they were really picking on their brother when they threw that name at him. Now, they also had the farm during World War I because they were trying to use, basically, if they raise crops and make vegetables they don't have to go in the army right so many bought them a farm and they did that for a little while a couple of them registered as farmers but it was really close to the end of the war they didn't really do much farming uh, according to groucho all they ever did with that farm is take the train to see the white Sox play because it was near the ballpark <laughs> um, they called each other zeke and zeb on the farm who knows that was yeah. maxine march's chico's daughter uh, bill marx had some insight he's harpo's son he's totally sold on Zip the Pinhead as being the derivation of it. Zeppo's own son, Tim, says that makes complete sense because they would have changed it so it wouldn't seem like they were picking on him. It's generated way more conversation about the book than anything else that I've never expected. People it? say, how can you be so definitive on it? 
And, well, you know, I'm just not buying the other stuff, but I've got a lot of corroboration on it. And then you look at a picture of Zip the Pinhead, you look at Zeppo, and you say, yeah, I guess this is right. Well, I'll definitely have to look at that picture, and our listeners will as well. Before we talk about the transition into film, which I think is absolutely fascinating, uh, as is everything in the book, let's talk about uh, the, the personalities in play. And you mentioned that when Minnie stops managing Chico, of all people, for a time, takes over or tries to take over. Doesn't strike me, I know he's the oldest, but he doesn't strike me as the managerial type, uh, especially, as Groucho would later say, because Chico needed the money, to quote our good friend, Gilbert <laughs> Godfrey. So what what happened there? What Was Chico really intent well, on leading the crew or what? No, I think what was going on there was Chico, when he joined the act, saw that she was underselling them to sell some of her other acts. The Marx Brothers had started to become very, very popular and successful by, by 1911, 1912. Chico joins in the fall of 1912, and he's taking a look at this. He'd been out in vaudeville on his own with a couple of different acts, three different acts, actually. And what he noticed was they were booked solid, getting a lot of work, but she was packaging them with crappy acts and taking really low bookings. And he said, Mom, they're too good for this. we got to get, you know, we got to do a little better. So he started doing some bookings and gradually evolved into mom's going to focus on Uncle Harry's terrible act and we're going to focus on the Marx Brothers. And Chico started to handle things, but always letting her feel like she was still in charge. And the other Marx Brothers always said that she would only let that happen with Chico because she was so enamored of him. She just loved him so much. Chico was the only son she would have let take any control because she wanted him in the act so bad. She just wanted him to leave his other partner and come and join it and make it before Marx Brothers. It meant so much to her. So she let Chico have a little control, but they always let her feel like she was still the boss. And she was the head of the act. She owned the act when it started to get really big. So Chico started managing the act while Minnie was still really the head of it. And he was a gambler, as we all know. And he was the guy who would take chances and he would be willing to try things that a normal manager wouldn't try. Famously, in 1914, when the Marx Brothers had home again and they knew how big a success it was, they ran an ad in Variety saying, if we don't top the biggest house you've ever had and bring in more money at your box office than any other act, we'll work the week for free. You don't have to pay us. Mm. Now, it sounds like a crazy gamble, but in truth, it wasn't. They really were selling out everywhere. And the, the thing about that act that they don't really tell you, what they could have always done if they didn't beat the house record, throw in the third performance one day and there you've beaten the house record. <laughs> so they were playing with a stacked deck. Yeah. They were never going to lose on that bet. They yeah. were never going to do that. Chico thought of that kind of stuff. Chico put them into another stratosphere financially. Now, his share of it would get gambled away before they collected it. And if he was collecting at the box office, he'd gamble away their share, too. And there was a point in their history where they took turns managing the act one week a month for each Marx brother. Hmm. And it was always very important that when Chico was managing the act that another brother collected at the box office. Makes sense. Their money be gone. (laughs) (laughs) So so let's do this. Let's talk about the transition because Coconuts is such a joy to watch, but it's also – so fascinating to me because it's it's so raw and early in the talkies and so forth. And there are mistakes that are visible and, and weird things going on. And, and they're talking very quickly. That was an issue too, wasn't it? The fact that they were so quick, their patter yeah, was so the fast. 
Coconuts is fascinating to watch, um, not because it's a really beautifully made film. It's fascinating because it shows you what they were like on Broadway, yeah. even in a way that Animal Crackers cannot, because Animal Crackers is a much better film in that technology had gone very far in a year. Mm. They actually at one point considered putting a whole bunch of cameras in the theater and just shooting coconuts live on stage and then editing it, but it didn't really work, and they did do it on the soundstage. The craziest thing to me about the transition to film is how it marginalized the notion of them as a quartet by removing almost everything substantial that Zeppo did on the Broadway stage. They really were the four Marx brothers. Zeppo was a star in the Broadway period. Uh, when you see something like people talking about Zeppo being in a movie, a movie called The Kiss in the Dark, it's only partially been found, but Zeppo's piece doesn't exist, at least as we know. He appears in that in a cafe sequence at a party of Broadway stars. He's in that film because he's a Broadway star. There was constant coverage of his comings and goings. He would sing in the occasional nightclub. The, the columnists ate him up. He was a good-looking young guy, and he was a Broadway star. Well, he sang a lot. He's in a lot of featured numbers. If you look at a program, like a Broadway program from Coconuts, see the guy's in like seven or eight song numbers. He's in Dances with Bleeding Ladies. He's busy. He's on the stage a lot. There's also a lot of action with the four Marx Brothers on stage, they really were the four Marx Brothers. In the movies, it's like they're the three Marx Brothers and there's this good-looking guy in a suit who pops up once in a while. But the truth is, it was very difficult to film a sequence with the four of them. You see very few bits with all four Marx Brothers in the movies. I mean, by the time you get the horse feathers and they're outside on a football field, it's a little easier. But in Coconuts, you get the lobby sequence, you got scenes with Groucho and Zeppo, but you don't really see a lot of tomfoolery with four guys in the, in that short film that's in the house that shadows built, which I'll, I'll plug the Blu-ray of that in a moment. They're the four of them on stage doing what is really the opening sequence to on the balcony. And I'll say she is it's the four of them in a comedy sequence interacting as a quartet. Is that the one in the office of the, um, yes, the agent, the, the theatrical manager's office. That's one of the, I just watched it the other night and prepping for this. It's, it's so well done and so quick and, and Zeppo's great. He's terrific. That's Zeppo doing stuff that would have been the opening sequence of a very successful vaudeville act called on the balcony, also known as on the mezzanine floor. Yeah. yeah. And then they incorporated that into every stage act they did after that. It was in Alsatians. It was in the thing called the Schweinerei, which they did at the very end of their vaudeville career. That was a stock bit for the Marx Brothers. So when they came to Paramount, they were about to start making monkey business. And they were making this promotional film about the history of Paramount, whereas other films in production had sequences they could use in this film. The Marx Brothers hadn't shot anything for monkey business yet, so they shot that thing that they knew so well that they had done on stage a couple of thousand times. And fortunately, that exists as a real record of how good Zeppo was on stage. Yeah, yeah. it's it's that was the beginning of him wanting to get out of the act. You know, he was he saw how a Broadway musical that was two hours and forty minutes on stage was ninety minutes, and most of what they took out was his stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't. I don't blame him at the time. And of course, he becomes a theatrical agent, doesn't he? he become a pretty popular business show business yeah, business guy. Uh, he became very, very successful at a lot of things. There's a wonderful quote from a Marx Brothers writer um, named Maury Riskin, who wrote a wonderful autobiography called An Elephant in My Pajamas, because he actually wrote that line. Mm -hmm. um, 
should be able to be John. He said Zeppo was successful at everything he ever tried except being a Marx brother. Hmm. And he, well, he actually tried his hand at screenwriting, and he wrote uh, or co-wrote four screenplay treatments in the early 30s, none of which were produced, but I believe that one of them was actually ripped off by uh, a Warner First National film with Joey Brown. Hmm. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, he was trying to do a lot of things to get out of being the Marx Brothers. He tried to be a screenwriter, but he ended up buying his way into an established theatrical agency. And very quickly after he bought into it, the agency partners started to split up and go their separate ways. And there's some uh, mob influence in that story, which hopefully will come out soon in another book. But Zeppo became immediately successful. He had a lot of powerful friends in show business, maybe in the mob. So Zeppo starts off as an agent with clients like the Marx Brothers and Kaufman and Riskin, uh, you know, some other successful screenwriter friends. There's Alexander Wolcott was apparently his first client. So he jumped into the agency business, did pretty well. And, you know, with his partners, a guy named Frank Orsatti and a guy named Milton Bren, he began being a very successful agent. And he ended up later on with clients like Fred. He pretty much discovered Fred McMurray. Uh, mm. Later on, he brought Gummo into the business. Gummo discovered Glenn Ford. Mm. So they were very busy. They handled Barbara Stanwyck for quite a while, and he became very friendly with Robert Taylor and Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, Zeppo's first wife, Marion, was Barbara Stanwyck's best friend. Wow. Uh, Didn't know that. A lot of interesting stories about Zeppo. Before we close out, I want to talk to you about your other projects, and we will. Um, the movie uh, span of Marx Brothers, it's always sad to people who love the Marx Brothers that – we had so many great films so early, and then they start to trail off, and then there's a space between them, and then finally it just peters out. I mean, whose fault was that, if anyone's? Was it just bad management, or no. is there a— I'd like to think that—I wouldn't say there's any, any fault involved. What I would say is they probably stuck around in the movies a little longer than necessary because, in part, as you like to say, Chico may have needed money. money, yes. They also reached a point where, let's not forget, they were in their 40s when they started making movies. They'd mm-hmm. had a 25-year vaudeville career. These were not young men in the movies. So after the five Paramounts, and I'll give them the first two MGM, which I think are pretty good. They're not the same Marx Brothers. And there's a real dilution of what makes them great in those MGM films, but they're still great. Yeah. I mean, I can watch the contract scene and say it's as funny as Why a Duck. Absolutely. But in the in the totality of those movies... The comedy seems almost like it's inserted to sort of show you what they used to be. Yeah, we have but, to sit through the romantic songs and all that nonsense yeah. to get back to them. Yeah, I, I I'm not a big fan of um, the last three MGMs. I think Room Service gets a bum rap. It's not really written for them, but they do a decent job in it. Um, at the Circus, Go West, the big store for me, the ones I watched the least. I haven't looked at any of them in years. Um, but I really, really enjoy A Night in Casablanca. It's one of my favorite Marx Brothers movies, and it's very late in the game. And it just shows you that with the right script, they could still do it. And, you know, Love Happy barely counts as a Marx Brothers picture. That was a Harpo picture that sort of got hijacked by Chico, and then <laughs> the producer brought it Groucho. So, yeah, that, that's a bit of a mess. I wouldn't hold that one again. I would grade them an incomplete on that one. I wouldn't All hold right. that against their permanent record. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. The book is amazingly detailed and it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of real history, not only of show business, but of the times, as I say, the World War One and the influenza and what was life like in 1906. I mean, it's just astounding. Let's talk about Dick Cavett and some of the work you're doing with him, another one of my favorite all-time people. And you've got uh, two projects, one that's already uh, out there. Yeah, uh, I was uh, interested in talking about this because the film Ali and Cavett, The Tale of the Tapes, which you can see on HBO now, it uh, premiered at the South by Southwest Film Festival, did a few other festivals before being picked up by HBO. It's coming out on DVD in June, and I, of course, want to plug that, but I think it's a really interesting take on Ali's story through Dick Cavett and his friendship with him. And I always had this plan to do a film about Cavett and Groucho, which I'm about to finish, and that's going to be uh, shown by PBS. I can't tell you exactly when, because they don't know exactly when, but it's just about finished, and that'll be out soon. We'll have an announcement about that. But I think it's going to be uh, a surprise. It's very, very well, charming. It's sort of like a buddy picture about an old guy and a young guy. It's will fun. that include the, the concert, the Carnegie Hall concert? Any footage from that? Uh, not so much. Just, no. you know, Dick might mention it a little bit, but really it focuses on his his appearances on the Cavett show. Yeah. And I've got footage from a couple of the lost ones from Dick's morning show uh, that's been restored and you know rescued from the scrap heap, so to speak. Uh, there'll be some surprise footage. So people who think they've seen all the Dick Cavett shows with Groucho are in for a surprise. Well, and Dick is wonderful in it. You know, he, he just loves talking about Groucho. So I'm really happy to be able to get that one out there soon. And, you know, there's just... Uh, it's really, really lucky to get to work with Dick Cavett's archive. You know, there are oh my gosh! Shows. I think it's endless. Really, he, he is the he's the natural stuff. connection between Groucho and today. I mean, because he's he's Dick Cavett. You know, he's got that wry <laughs> sense. Of I, I said something to him recently that kind of threw him back on his heels a little bit. I said, boy, you're the age now that Groucho was on your show, and I'm the age you were. And I, I think I made him turn white. To, really? <laughs> because Cavett needed the money or something like that. Anyway. Yeah, no, that he, he got so much out of the experience of us making the Ali film. And I think the reaction sort of took him by surprise because – I don't. We, we were invited to film festivals, and we went around the country and screened the film, and we got interviewed everywhere. And all of a sudden, you know, people were asking the questions about Muhammad Ali more than they were asking about Groucho. And he's used to everybody coming up, and the first question is Groucho. In fact, mm. when I met Cabot like almost forty years ago, um, I bothered him about Groucho instantly. I was an intern on a shoot he was doing, and the people who put me in there said, "Don't go bothering him about Groucho." <laughs> First thing you ask him, right? Come yeah, on. I waited about eight seconds and I bothered about Groucho. Well, I would have done the same. Robert, this is really a, a treat. I'm so glad you accepted my invitation. And uh, you wrote a, a little email to me right before we came on the air saying uh, you're going to have to bone up on your Marx Brothers. You did quite well. I'd give you an A+. Plus. Well, okay. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, you're grading on a curve because it's been about five years since the book came out. But well, I, I have to reread it because people ask me questions about it that you know, I spent so many years researching. I've been eight years writing it. I'm going, to, I'm going to go do a deep dive and refine that $5,000 joke that Al Sheen wrote. That's the, that's the one thing. Oh, yes. I will uh, leave that to you. I will. I will. Do, I will, will <laughs> I'm going gonna, gonna to look that up and use that joke at cocktail parties if we ever go back to cocktail parties. I could, if, I, if I could squeeze in one more shameless plug, there's a sure. good reason for this. We did touch on the house that Shadows built in the theatrical manager's office sketch. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Um, there's a Blu-ray available of Harpo's film, Too Many Kisses, the silent film he appeared in in 1925. And it's available uh, at filmpreservationsociety.org or at Amazon or all fine retailers. But if you buy this Blu-ray, there's a bonus, the complete restored film of The House That Shadows Built with that theatrical manager's office sketch in absolutely pristine quality. And if you go to the Film Preservation Society website, filmpreservationsociety.org, you could actually purchase four of the three musketeers and all the proceeds go to film preservation, as do all the proceeds from Too Many Kisses. So if you want to buy the book and not let me get a dime for it, that's the place to do it. <laughs> well, uh, we won't... Uh broadcast that or podcast that too greatly but no that's great at some point we'll have to have you back to talk about film work and preservation work which is uh, one of your passions but uh, but before I let you go there's one more thing you know we didn't we could have talked about Marx Brothers for the next 10 years but in that one sequence you're you're mentioning that beautiful scene where all the brothers are there you don't really have all that magic without the straight guy and I think about Margaret Dumont and all the the great foils for them greats that were just there for them to chew on yeah i mean i believe that seeing the four march brothers in those early films is a real link to the march brothers of broadway and vaudeville and that's the way i really want to see them so to me those first five films are just gold i love them the book is called Four of the Three Musketeers, The Marx Brothers on Stage. It is a, a tome worth having. Robert Bader presents. Thank you so much, my friend. A real pleasure meeting you. Thanks a lot, Jordan. Have fun. That was so much fun. Thank you to Robert Bader, author of Four of the Three Musketeers. But it's time now for a bonus track. Because so many of you are wondering, what was that Al Sheehan joke, that $5,000 joke? Well, Robert informed me after we finished taping that the story is in this voluminous book on pages 356 and 357, and it goes something like this. There was at least one other uncredited writer on the film, although Groucho would later claim Saul Violinsky only contributed one line to the script. Violinsky was engaged by Paramount for 10 weeks and probably made a more substantial contribution. But there was a writer who did, in fact, manage to contribute just one line to the film. Critic Harry Evans, without identifying the writer, told the tale in his Life magazine review of Monkey Business. And here it is. A famous comedian whose name we will not mention was hired at a fancy salary to write gags into the dialogue, create comedy situations, and generally brighten up the piece. Get ready, because here comes the gag. In one scene, a girl says... Ever since I've been married to this man, I have lived a dog's life. To which Groucho answers, Well, maybe he got a dog license instead of a marriage license. <laughs> you probably laughed at it the first time you heard it, if you can remember that far back. That line is the one and only contribution that the famous comedian made to the picture. And it cost the company $5,000. But the Marx Brothers didn't object, since the recipient of Paramount's unintended generosity was the aforementioned Al Sheehan. They owed their uncle so much, it was the least they could do. So now you know about the $5,000 joke. Thank you, Robert Bader, author of Four of the Three Musketeers, a book so big it has its own website, marksbrothers.net, marksbrothers.net. Ah, that was worth it. Want to thank Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, Ken Carberry at Chart Productions in Boston, and all of you for subscribing and downloading and rating and reviewing the podcast, growing in numbers every single week. We appreciate that. Until next time, this is Jordan saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Hello, I really must be going now. See you next time. Take care. <laughs>